Hi, I'm uh, here to see the baby. Oh, you mean the child whose birth was foretold in the stars. Uh, well, yeah, there was this uh, angel that told me to come. An angel? Yeah, a big winged fella made out of fire and light and all these, like, spinning wheels and stuff. Oh, oh, of course. Yes, well, step right this way. Just, we should warn you, be prepared. Oh, no worries. I've, I've been around babies before. I got two of my own. I'll, I'll keep quiet. No, no, no. You don't understand. This is a special infant. It looks different. Oh, yeah, ugly baby. Don't worry, I got it. I know how to respond, what to say, what not to say. I don't think you do know, my friend. This baby is unlike anything I've seen before in my travels in the Far East to the Far West. It is unusual. Well, now I, I really want to see this baby. Let's do this. Well, you should take a moment to prepare yourself. Oh, Jesus. Yes, that is his name. I... He looks like a, a tiny old man. I mean, and not in the way that he's supposed to look like a tiny old man. He, he looks like a, a miniature old man with, with... Are those abs? Yes, they are. And we're all a bit confused about the blonde hair. Like, I'm only now noticing that there's a disc of cosmic radiance surrounding his head because I'm distracted by the, the fact that he looks like a, a, a miniature old man with, with muscles. Strange, isn't it? Oh, he's looking this way. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, it being right around the Christmas season, for, for these Christmas celebrating cultures all over the place, that uh, we should ask you to do a little thought experiment going through the history of of art and depiction of the Christian nativity scene. Yes, the Im- baby Jesus. Imagine you're one of those shepherds or wise men or farm animals or other uh, assembled masses on the premises in the nativity scene. So you're there in the barn and the major and there's the baby. But the baby doesn't quite look right. Indeed. Uh, and it doesn't look right in a way that is is quite unsettling. It looks like a like a tiny adult. Yeah, Mary is there, Joseph's looking on sometimes depending on the painting, and she's got the baby in her arms or on her lap or or in the manger. No matter what, the baby kind of looks like Alan Arkin. <laughs> yeah, the, the 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 Christ child often does in some of these uh, these paintings that we're going to be discussing here or, today. Or Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, a little bit of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Sometimes I catch a little bit of Vladimir Putin in there. Oh yeah, it's yeah. you got a baby Putin sometimes, or sometimes the Christ child looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes. Yeah. This uh, this is the case. If if you look at a lot of medieval art and even early Renaissance art, mm-hmm. you'll see these depictions of the Christ child that are a little jarring, especially if you're used to more modern interpretations of a baby in a manger. And, and that includes like actual live nativity scenes where you have a, a, an actual infant mm-hmm. standing in for the Christ child. This is something that I imagine a number uh, of our listeners out there have picked up on uh of late because there are these articles, these sort of galleries that make the rounds on social media, often with titles like Ugly Renaissance Babies or Renaissance um, Babies in Renaissance Paintings That Can't Even. I think that was a title of one that uh, gave me a chuckle a while back where it'll just be this barrage. Very BuzzFeedy. Yeah. yeah, very BuzzFeedy, very clicky. 
And it'll be this just barrage of indeed strange looking babies. Now, babies are strange looking anyway. But on top of that, you do have all of these like odd poses, these odd facial expressions, mm-hmm. the odd just morphology of the Christ child, uh, sometimes involving like what appears to be male pattern baldness uh-huh. or muscles, like adult muscles, like something out of a statue of Apollo. Uh-huh. And uh, it's it's a little confusing, especially considering that, you know, sometimes these are in older medieval works where there's a certain abstraction to the to just how the, the human form itself is displayed. But other times it's clearly a work of of high craftsmanship, of high artistry. And yet the the baby, the center of the picture, the really the, the, the most important figure in uh, in Christian traditions there's something off about it. And it, if you really begin to think about it and try to, to tease it apart, it, it's it's initially difficult to figure out why. Why would this one thing be so off? Yeah, so we wanted to talk today about the artistic traditions of depicting the Christ child specifically, the baby in the manger, but also babies in general throughout uh, medieval art and Renaissance art. Uh, anybody who'd be having occasion to draw the nativity or to draw the Virgin Mary and the, and the Christ child in her arms uh, and why so often you get little odd aliens with wide <laughs> eyes gazing up to the mothership or why you get uh, creepy old men uh, with like long slender limbs or babies that seem to be maybe growing a five o'clock shadow. Some of these even remind me of uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau, the version with uh, Marlon Brando. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you recall, he had what would later become known as a mini-me. Uh, and some of the, the Christ childs that you encounter in uh, in medieval art have that kind of uh, appearance. Yeah, and so what we're picking up on is our instinctual ideas about what babies are supposed to look like. And we, we've talked about this in recent episodes, actually. We talked about it in our cuteness and monstrosity episode back in October. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, there are these basic features that you see as the most common morphologies associated with babies. And it's been hypothesized that certain types of features sort of set off our cuteness detectors that like we see a creature of a certain kind of shape and it makes us go, oh, I want to take care of that thing. And so some of these commonly understood shapes would be like a large head and like a large forehead or what's known as the predominance of the brain capsule, large low lying eyes. So the eyes are sort of low set on the face and they're big bulging cheeks uh, short, thick, kind of stubby, uh, arms and legs, a springy or elastic consistency. So something that looks kind of soft mm-hmm. and maybe not covered in really hard muscles <laughs> and, uh, clumsy movements is the final one. I guess that would come through more in, in real life movement, though you can sometimes communicate grace or clumsiness in poses. And a lot of these, uh, baby Jesuses in these paintings do appear very graceful in their movements. Yeah, you see the sort of a regal demeanor. Sometimes they're brandishing a, a scepter or or a parrot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then on top of that, many of these features that we've already touched on, uh, they look like miniature adult humans, and they're proportioned that way. Slender arms and legs, uh, or the the baby has appear appears to have what it may be male pattern baldness, mm-hmm. uh, painfully thin or overly muscular. And like some of these are seriously muscular. Oh yeah. 
like like power lifter muscular. Yeah, you look at them and you 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 may immediately ask, did they ever see a baby? Did they know what a baby looked like? You mean the artist? Not, yes, the not artist. The baby like, in the painting. Did they just say, well, I guess it was like a smaller version of Michelangelo's David? That's clearly what an infant would consist of. So, what was causing all of these painters and and sculptors and people to uh, represent babies in a way that so thoroughly violates our instinctual categories of what babies look like and how they're shaped. Well, that is the discussion for today. And, I, and it's really it's really I think it's a surprisingly uh, broad discussion because it's it, we're going to end up drawing in not only art history and medieval history, but also a fair amount of Christian theology, uh, scientific uh, attempts to understand what's happening with human reproduction. It's one of these excellent topics where you have just this convergence of several different disciplines. And hopefully, in the end, this is going to be an episode that alchemists and biologists alike can get into, Christians and non-Christians, art historians and precious moments figurine collectors. You're all going to be uh, uh, united in this exploration of uh, weird baby Jesuses in art. All right. Well, I think maybe we should take a quick break. And when we come back, we will explore this question further. All right. We're back. So before we go any, any further, let's just talk about the time frame here. We are largely talking about a popular style within medieval European artistic traditions that give way to more realistic depictions of children and the Christ child during the Renaissance. But not always perfectly realistic. Right. So I would say – you can correct me if you disagree, but the main thing we see is in the medieval period, you're going to have – Babies and baby Jesuses that don't look anything like babies look like creepy old men or look like aliens. Mm -hmm. And then going into the Renaissance, you're going to get things that start to look a little bit more realistic and less like strange aliens and creepy old men, but more just sort of like super muscular nude babies. Yeah, it's a it's a gradual process. This uh, th- this transformation that takes hold over over the Christ child in art, and it's not going to have. There's not like a firm timeline across all areas and all artists. Mm-hmm. It is it is a, a shift in artistic traditions, and therefore it's not going to happen. Uh, you know, like clockwork. But speaking of clockwork, just to assign rough boundaries to these time periods, the Middle Ages are generally said to stretch from the 5th century to the 15th century, from the fall of the Western Roman Empire to the dawn of the Renaissance. And the Renaissance uh, begins in Florence, Italy uh, in the 14th century and kind of extends out from there. But uh, as Phil Edwards put it in a, a Vox article that he wrote, well, why babies in medieval paintings look like ugly old men, <laughs> he says that there, there are holes in the Renaissance. Uh, and, and I think this jives with our modern experience of creative trends, right? Like the Renaissance is not going to pick up everywhere at once. Uh, it's going to pick up in certain areas, certain places that are perhaps more progressive, mm-hmm. and then it's going to steadily leak into these other portions of Europe. Well, things don't pick up everywhere at once now on Earth, and we have the Internet. That's I mean, right. they didn't have anything like the Internet then. So if you're, if you're talking about expansion of learning and techniques and artistic styles changing, yeah, that's going to take hundreds of years. Yeah, for instance, we have electronic music now. We've had it for decades, and yet I'm still hearing classical scores for motion pictures. It's disgusting. What's up with that? <laughs> so you just want to Wendy Carlos everything into the future. Yes. Tangerine Dream, Wendy Carlos. Um, uh, that, that's what I want in all of my films. Anything less is uh, disappointing. Okay. So are we going to look at a few examples of paintings? 
Well, it's, it's going to be hard to look at them during the podcast, I guess, but I'm going to create an accompanying page at StuffToBlowYourMind.com that includes many of the paintings we're discussing here today. Okay. So you can get an idea about what we're talking about here. Well, should we at least try to describe a couple of them? Sure, let's do it. So the first one we're going to talk about is from 1230. So this is thoroughly medieval period. before thoroughly. Before the Renaissance. Yeah. And uh, the artist is one Baron Berlinger. And it's titled Madonna and Child. And it is a picture of the Madonna, the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. and the Christ Child. I'd say they both look like aliens. <laughs> they have extremely, extremely elongated faces with very, very long noses. Mm-hmm. Um, like not noses as – not long as in poking out from the face but extending way, way down uh, along the length of the face. Yeah, it has uh, it has what you would probably call like Byzantine aesthetics to it, mm-hmm. and the child. I thought the child kind of looks like Peter Capaldi or perhaps Harold Ramis. I sort of see a uh, an Art Garfunkel from Metaluna, you know, the planet <laughs> Exeter is from, and this island Earth. And he's yeah. why is he holding a stick of dynamite? Is that a scepter or a <laughs> I scroll? Think it's supposed to be a scepter. So the child does have a very regal air to them. This uh-huh. is. This is a child that is probably going – a Christ child that is going to speak to you as an adult mm-hmm. or at least that's what you get uh, from this this particular image. And send you instructions for an interocitor. Yes. Now, the, the next image I'm still trying to track down the, uh, the, the actual time and artist on but I'll try and include it on the page and then you can refer back to it. But in this one we see – Another sort of alien-looking, serene Mary, this time with a a kind of halo behind her head. Mm -hmm. And she is holding a Christ child that also has a halo around his head. Mary looks like the alien from Mac and Me, and the baby just is straight-up David Gergen. (laughs) Can you you, uh, (laughs) describe who David Gergen is? David Gergen, he's an American political consultant. I think he worked for Nixon and for Bill Clinton, maybe. Uh, but yeah, he's just got a, a he's got a kind of distinctive face, and the baby looks like him. Yes, a, a very mature face, to say the least. Yeah. Now, the next image we're going to discuss is this is the one that really captured me the most for a number of reasons. It's a a work by the Dutch master Martin van Hemskerk, and this guy lived fourteen ninety eight through fifteen seventy four. So this is this is the uh, this is very much an, an early Renaissance guy here mm-hmm. with 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 clear early renaissance uh, artistic skills like it is a a beautiful painting titled Saint Saint Luke painting the virgin it is a depiction of a uh, of a, a sort of a legendary tale that takes hold and is and is uh, repeated numerous times in artistic traditions in which the in which Luke the biblical Luke paints a pic- a painting of Mary and the Christ child is this supposed to be the author of the gospel of Luke yes okay uh, one thing you will immediately notice once you start getting into the Renaissance period paintings is that they look not exactly realistic, but much, much more realistic than the medieval paintings. Robert, I was making this comparison earlier, and I, I wonder what you've been thinking about it. When I see medieval European artwork, I often think of it as uh, being somewhat similar to modern political cartoons Mm -hmm. in that there's really no effort to achieve realism of any kind. You're not trying to render a photorealistic person or get the details and proportions of the human body right. People have sort of exaggerated features that almost look as if they are designed to 
indicate certain symbolic things about the people and that I get that feeling because like in political cartoons, people aren't really meant to literally embody people but usually embody a concept. So like in a political cartoon, you'd have like a guy in a suit with like a, you know, like a big crazy looking face and he's, he's just got a label on him that says like taxes. Yeah. <laughs> and medieval artwork seems a lot like that to me. Like a character depicted often seems to embody a virtue or embody a sin or embody some other kind of abstract idea. Yeah. I, I thought about this uh, a lot when we were reading this uh, as it relates to monstrosity because mm-hmm. we see so many wonderful monstrosities in medieval artistic traditions. And sometimes they, they involve Christ as well. There's this – I was showing you a few of these images before we went in here. But you have these uh, occasional depictions either of Christ with three faces or three heads or depictions of the Holy Trinity, the idea that you have uh, God – uh, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit all as one uh, united thing, you have it displayed as a three-headed, sort of a three-headed angel or a three-headed Christ. Mm-hmm. And if you look at this, certainly from a modern perspective, it seems a little weird. It seems potentially blasphemous. Yeah. Uh, and yet, uh, and, and yet you have to put yourself in the mind of someone trying to convey a complex theological um, uh, model to someone using only visuals. How would you do that? Well, you just draw Christ with three faces. Yeah, I think that's a good point. There's like another way in which we see that apparently realism did not seem to be a highly prized aspect uh, of of representation of people in medieval artworks, in medieval European artworks. Which brings us back to this this painting by Martin van Hemskerk, which is – Highly detailed. It is yeah. a it is a beautiful image. You're going to have to definitely look at this on the the page that I build. But at the same time, if, we, if we're going to compare it to to other things, like what this makes me think about, and images like this make me think about, are scenes in movies that are so well shot, so like insanely shot that it throws you out of the viewing experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it, maybe it'll be some you know, experimental director or some sort of shot where they had to digitally remove the you know the camera or the set to make it work, where you're just thrown out of the movie because you're thinking, "Wow, how did they shoot this? This is just a, a technical marvel." And then you don't you're not even paying attention to what the characters are doing. Yeah, you can think about that in multiple directions. I I don't love movies with a lot of CGI action in them because mm-hmm. I I stop it stops feeling real to me. But you could go in the other direction. You don't even have to use a lot of CGI. You might think about like Ter- Terrence. Malik films or something mm-hmm. where uh, there's just going to be a whole lot of extremely beautiful kind of perfect photography in them. Yeah. And that can sometimes tend to take you out of the narrative uh, because you just sort of like zone out looking at it and then sometimes thinking critically about it like, wow, that you know, what <laughs> what were they how, what were they doing with this shot? Uh, I have the same experience with with super long shots in a film mm-hmm. like there seems to be a cutoff. Where, where a long shot ceases to be just like a seamless experience of the movie and you start freaking out and realize, oh my goodness, we're still in the same shot. Right. How did they do this? Stop it. Stop shooting, <laughs> shooting because you're just, this is, must be costing a fortune. <laughs> now this Van, uh, Hemskirk painting here, it is beautiful and it does seem realistic in a lot of ways, but the baby Jesus in it is messed up. He, <laughs> he is a beefy gremlin power lifter. 
and not just so he's super ripped with muscles all over and has adult human man proportions mm-hmm. does not have that you know large baby head and stubby legs he's got ripped muscly arms and legs and he's also doing this pose that's like this donkey kong pose you know where he's yeah. like stomping with one leg up and down he he looks like he is like in a roid rage against mary and it's it's notable too that there is an angel standing in the background lighting the painting like mm-hmm. a, a winged humanoid and we're not even talking about that we're talking right. about the baby as being the the most unrealistic portion of of the, of the painting but to come back to the theme in a different way than the medieval artwork this just seems like if somebody painted this now it would come off as a deliberate act of blasphemy yeah. you know it would look like somebody was trying to to make fun of the baby jesus in some way uh but no i mean this this appears to be genuinely reverent artwork uh, and so why why would they do that with all the muscles? I mean, it's especially noteworthy in the work of, uh, of Van Hemskerk because you see some other paintings that he did. He did a, a subsequent uh, uh, painting of of St. Luke painting the Virgin Mary and the baby. And it's uh, it's notable for a number of reasons. Uh, for starters, the baby is less ridiculous, but also still fairly muscular and has a parrot uh, on one hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, you see in the, in the foreground, there is a, a book that is apparently supposed to be uh, uh, a notable um, uh, anatomy textbook. In the background, there is somebody uh, dissecting a corpse so that they can better create uh, uh, sculptures of the human body. Mm-hmm. So the painting itself is kind of about the insane level of detail that goes into depicting the human form in paintings and about how you rely upon uh, the work of Galen and and uh, and other anatomists uh, how you're you're looking at the classical sculpture as the model and the ideal human form mm-hmm. and yet the, the child is still this thing that is in a state of flux that is somehow outside of this new artistic tradition. Yeah. The child doesn't look as as crazy as he did in the other painting, but he's still got monstrously muscled legs. Yeah. It looks like he he reminds me his legs look like those um uh 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 those Belgian blue cattle, you know, the ones where they have all the like the double muscles that they've been <laughs> bred for. And it looks like somebody stuffed a bunch of bean bags under their skin. Yeah, I think I think that's apt. It's still a very very muscular baby, and and the thing is, you can look at other paintings that uh, that Hemskirk did. Uh, for instance, he did a fifteen thirty two painting of a family, a family portrait, and it's just a uh, you know a mom, a dad, uh, two young children, and then an infant. And the infant, uh, yeah, is still a little on the muscular side, but but would not instantly throw you off if you just saw this on a on a wall in a museum you wouldn't freak out and say ah muscle baby what's going on you would just say ah well there's another portrait of a family looks a little bit like louis anderson but okay yeah but but in in the appropriate way that all babies should look kind of like louis anderson yeah all right so let's start taking this apart and figuring out what's going on here so for starters, this obviously wasn't simply a case of artists didn't learn how to draw babies till later. Right. People all over the world in different cultures have learned different ways of representing the human body throughout history. And there have been methods before the medieval European art traditions that were much more photorealistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we have to think about style, the artistic intention, but also about the subject matter itself. 
Uh, so we have to, to ground artistic depictions of infants within the framework of the time. How did denizens of the Middle Age Ages view babies? Well, that's a good question, and it turns out that is something that has undergone a decent amount of controversy over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, for starters, uh, I mentioned that Vox article earlier by Phil Edwards, and in it he speaks with Matthew uh, Averett, uh, an art history professor at uh, Crichton University and editor of the anthology The Early Modern Child in Art and History. And uh, he points out that medieval paintings were typically commissioned by churches, which meant that any painting of a baby was most likely going to be the baby Jesus, with some prominent exceptions here and there. Like it might be Moses or John the Baptist. But generally, you're pro- if you're painting a baby during this time, you're probably painting the Christ child. So when you see babies in medieval European artwork, you're probably not getting so much a sense of what they thought of babies, but what they thought of the baby Jesus in particular. Right, which is a much more – we'll get more into the theology of this question later, but – but yeah, this is instantly more complicated than just, hey, see that, that drooling infant over there? Draw that infant as it looks now. Now, we did mention the idea that medieval artists were less interested in realistic depictions than artists of many other times and places, right? Right, yeah. It's only later that, it's particularly in the Renaissance, that people became interested in naturalism and idealized forms and looking back to these classical statues as a model. Averett sort of refers to medieval artwork as a kind of expressionism, right? Yeah. It doesn't usually get put that way in the literature, but thinks about it as the forms are expressing ideas and feelings more than they are like physical morphology. Yeah, so it's less it's less about what did Christ look like as a baby and more like how should how should I feel about the Christ child? How should I feel about the birth of Christ in this story? Now, up to this point, if that's all you know, you still might be a little bit confused because you'd be like, OK, so why am I seeing a little uh, Alan Arkin with muscles or something? Mm-hmm. We'll get back to that in a minute. So I followed up and went to this book that was edited by Matthew Averett the, called The Early Modern Child in Art and History, uh, published by Rutledge in 2015. And Averett wrote the intro chapter on this book. And I thought he had some interesting things to say about the artistic traditions of representing children and babies. His intro chapter focuses a lot on updating and critiquing this foundational work in the, the field of uh, of medieval ideas about children and artistic representations of children. And that was a 1960 book about children in history by the historian Philippe Aries. Now, uh, Renaissance Europe was a place and a time at which children were a huge portion of the population. It's been estimated that in Italian cities during the Renaissance, up to half of the population was under 15 years old. Oh, wow. I mean, think about that. But Aries believed that in the Middle Ages in Europe, childhood did not really exist as a concept. So for Aries, uh, his idea was that in medieval thought – Childhood did not exist as a meaningful stage of life, but was basically a mere transition period, which was quickly passed through and then forgotten. So for Aries, before the age of seven, children were considered sort of miniature adults. And then after the age of seven, they were simply adults, because at about the age of seven, they would assume adult roles in terms of labor and production. He also believed this was due to high mortality of infants and children in medieval Europe. Apparently, there were just... Uh, incredibly high rates of exposure and abandonment of babies mm-hmm. at the time. 
And in summarizing Eri's work, Avert writes that, quote, children appeared in medieval art, but as with the homunculus images of Jesus, and we'll get to more about that in a mm-hmm. bit, children were portrayed as miniature adults because artists and audiences had no conception of childhood and therefore would not have been able to understand a child like Jesus. Now, according to Aries, this began to change in the Renaissance when parents began to value childhood and childhood education as distinct from adult education. A lot of this had to do with changes in families, increases in uh, marriages based on love and the idea that you would you would nurture a child and treat them specifically as a child in how you instructed them. Yeah, just really this more modern concept that a, that childhood is this bubble that should be protected and maintained. Yeah. You know, that – the world that you present to your child is, you know, maybe not completely at odds with reality, but there are going to be certain uh, elements of reality that are that are more finely edited than others. Yeah. Now there might be some grains of truth in what Aries says, but beginning in about the 1980s, scholars began to seriously diverge from Aries' view of childhood as essentially non-existent or meaningless in medieval European thought. Uh, Averett disagrees with it too. He, though there are a lot of ways in which medieval and early modern depictions of children and babies are substantially different from one another, uh, and from modern depictions, of course, a lot of this had to do with the purpose of the art and what it was used for. Just one example, Averett says that strangely adult-looking children in some early modern paintings might be indicative of the fact that sometimes these paintings were considered for children. Sort of showing them good examples. Quote, parents in Renaissance Italy were encouraged to have images of saintly children and virgins because they set positive examples for children. So uh, by analogy, you might look at some of these muscly adult-shaped children and babies uh, that might have been for the benefit of young kids who would look at them and say, I want to be that muscle baby. Huh. And, and likewise, you could see this being an expression of what the adults want the child to be. Yeah. I want you to be this strong, regal, and, uh, and, and resilient individual. Yeah, but then also it's informed by theological concepts, remembering that a lot of these pictures of babies were supposed to be the baby Jesus. That might have been depicted just differently than other babies would be. And you got to think about like um, who art was generally made for in both the medieval and the Renaissance periods. Yeah, you didn't see much in the way of art, especially uh, portraiture, for the common people or certainly for the poor. These were images for the wealthy ruling classes. These were, these were uh, pieces of art for the church and, again, often displayed uh, biblical scenes or scenes of, 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 of importance within Christian tradition. Yeah. And then everyone was working within these artistic conventions. Like you can imagine yourself as an artist at this time. The church comes to you. They have a specific request. They want a particular biblical scene recreated uh, as a painting or some other medium. And then you have to follow through on it. And they're like any client. They have certain uh, uh, ideas in mind. They have certain existing works in mind. So you're kind of forced, probably shoehorned, into creating something within that artistic tradition. Uh-huh. There's not really a lot of room to try exciting new things. And, and again, you have to represent these various theological ideas as well. Or you're, you're having to pick up on existing uh, connections that are made in the literature. For example, I was reading from this book by Mary Dazon titled The Quest for the Christ Child in the Later Middle Ages. And she points out that you'll often encounter these, encounter these swaddled babies in medieval art that look very similar to 
dead infants that are wrapped up in grave shrouds. And this, she says, helps us appreciate why Christ frequently appears in nativity scenes tightly swaddled and lying on a, quote, block-like, almost tomb-like manger. And I'll include an example of this uh, on the the accompanying page for this episode uh, because there's a a wonderful piece from uh, around 1454, uh, a a, a German painting uh, that uh, displays this really dead-looking Christ child, just wrapped up like a mummy with this very vacant but believably uh, infantile uh, head. Yeah, it does have the baby proportions right. Like it's got the it's got the chubby cheeks and it's got the low set eyes, but it also looks miserable and somewhat lifeless. Yeah, this is a piece by Andrea Mantegna. And indeed, you look at this and you say, ooh, that poor baby, that poor Christ child. Uh-huh. He looks a bit out of it. He looks miserable. And, and part of this is because you had, uh, it was, it was common in the, in the artistic traditions and in the literary traditions to make this connection between, uh, the death of, of Christ, between, mm-hmm. uh, between Christ as a corpse in the tomb prior to resurrection and the initial birth of the Christ child. It's almost like the, the person of Christ in these medieval artworks is not to be represented as Jesus would have been in that scene in his life, but is sort of like loaded with all the significance of every story about him all at once. Yeah. And this comes back to the, again, to that medieval idea, especially that, that a painting is not just an, an illustration. It It is conveying some very important data about the subject. Mm-hmm. It is conveying theology to the viewer. Now, uh, Dizan, she argues that just as God was a mystery to medieval people, so too was the child. She touches on a lot of these discussions that uh, we've uh, alluded to already. Uh, she points out that medieval historian David Herlihy argued that the emergence of a new urban economy in the later Middle Ages led to greater awareness and concern for children. Not only this, but we came to idolize them as a coping mechanism for the stress of day-to-day life. So when times got tough, you thought like, oh, well, how great it is to be a child at play, despite all the plague. Yeah. Uh, and on top of this, though, there's another uh, there's another thing going on here, and that's that lay and religious people uh, of the day all came to admire the childlike aspects of the Christ child. So it's not just, uh, you know, the, the theological dimensions that are important here to the Christ, but but, but just the idea that there's an innocence uh, to the figure as well. Uh-huh. So uh, Dizan points out that some medieval commentators noted the childlike virtues of Jesus. And then you had the Cistercians and the Franciscans both promoting devotion to the child Jesus, though both aimed uh, for a more com- more complex understanding of Christ with sentimental childlike qualities kind of emerging as a byproduct. Uh-huh. So you have certainly had this older tradition where the Christ child is depicted as an all-knowing, all-powerful super baby. Mm-hmm. But then this new approach is, uh, is, is leaning more into a realistically sentimental depiction of a young Jesus. Still, design stresses that there, there are many categories for late medieval depictions of the, the baby Jesus. And it's kind of, uh, it, it would be, uh, disingenuous to say that you just had two types of of infants. You didn't have just ugly babies and realistic babies or just super babies and real babies. I think it's interesting to note all of the like uh the sort of fractious theological potential in the idea of the Christ child here because the idea of the infant Christ gives rise to these contradictions where it, whether you believe in him as like an all-knowing all-powerful super baby or a normal baby e- either one 
I could see people adhering to either one of those positions and finding the other one blasphemous. Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to take take this for granted. I guess growing up in within Christian traditions and just being bombarded with images of the Christ child. But just imagine like all the potential questions you have. Like, okay, this is the this is the Son of God. This mm-hmm. is God incarnate. Mm-hmm come to earth to redeem humanity. Mm-hmm. So what is it like as a baby? Is it is it smart and manlike in its behavior or is it pooping itself? Uh is it uh, is it puking? Is it doing all of these um you know at times uh disturbing and gross things that an, an actual larval humanoid would do? I'm sure I mean this has been subject to theological debate. Yeah. But once we're we're into the renaissance here, we have the the middle class growing in power and wealth. And uh, there's an, this increased demand for portraits, plus there's an increased emphasis on recording the world as it is rather than the expressionism of the past. Mm-hmm. I think one of the great examples of this, one we've discussed on the show before, is Peter Bruegel the Elder, yeah. the 16th century Flemish artist whose paintings just positively boil with depictions of contemporary and peasant life. Uh, even in religious works. Yeah, they're so busy. Yeah, you, but you can you can look at them and it gives you some insight into what what was actually going on in the the broader world and the world outside of the church and its books and its uh its artistic traditions. Yeah. Now, I want to ha- throw in one more note about nudity here that I think is revealing. Okay. Uh the nudity of the Christ child. Uh, because if you look at a lot of these images of uh late medieval and renaissance uh baby Jesuses, you'll often find that the baby is naked and sometimes the baby is like extremely naked mm-hmm. with just like exposed genitalia uh, to the point where it, it seems like a lot of – there was a lot of intent on making the child as naked as possible. Uh-huh. And indeed it does become common in Renaissance art to see the infant Jesus depicted nude with visible genitalia. The late art historian Leo Steinberg theorized that it had to do with ongoing theological debates about the humanity or the transcendent divinity of Jesus. So the nudity of the child, and perhaps its more realistic depiction in general, in general, is presented as proof of his humanity. So this is yet again an answer to a theological question. The idea is like, you know, was Jesus fully human or was he some sort of spirit being? And so they, they want to put their foot down and say like, no, he had a human body. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jesus Christ is largely held in Christian traditions as God incarnate and therefore the product of A, a mortal woman, no matter how virginal and esteemed, and B, the creator of the universe, God. Mm-hmm. So he is at, the, is at the very least a hybrid entity with attitudes leaning in mortal or divine directions depending on uh, you know your particular theology or in some cases your your particular heresy. Yeah. So how you know you end up asking how do you choose to think of and portray the newborn Christ as more human or as more divine, as natural or as preternatural? And this whole discussion occurs as humans are still working out exactly what's happening during reproduction itself. Yeah, we we haven't even gotten to that yet. I mean, how are these infant bodies formed in the first place? Yeah, does Mary contribute to the Christ child's humanity merely by being its vessel? Does she contribute to his flesh? Is there uh, there a resemblance between mother and child here? Uh, So keep all of this in mind as we take one more break and come back to continue to tackle this question, and indeed, summon the homunculus. All right, we're back. Robert, let's summon the homunculus. Yes, the homunculus. Now, when we when we talk about homunculi, uh, I, I imagine a number of people think 
rather uh, understandably of the uh, the alchemical homunculus, the yeah. idea of an artificial diminutive humanoid that is cooked up in a wizard's laboratory. Right. So you might have a, an alchemist like Paracelsus mm-hmm. who says that I can create a chemical human uh, one that is out, out, yeah, out of synthetic ingredients. I will make a, humo- a homunculus, a small man. And that's the funky chemical spelling too. Yeah, <laughs> with the, the Y, with the Y in it. Here's a quick quote from uh, Mary Bain Campbell uh, from Artificial Men: Alchemy, Transubstantiation, and the Homunculus. Quote: Mary, even to the Protestants who work to reduce her importance in the the dramatis uh, persona of the divine was and had to be a partner in this procreation, or Jesus could not be an incarnate God, half human, half divine. Nonetheless, the transubstantiation of the sacramental feast of the Eucharist was a process that became at least potentially susceptible to chemical, again with a Y, explanation in the intellectual world of the Reformation, a world that included the increasingly philosophical and spiritualized discipline of chemistry, the art of transmutation, and an increasingly naturalized theology. Oh, I've never made that connection before, but that's amazing. So believing in the transubstantiation of the Eucharist, meaning that when you take communion, Mm -hmm. the bread physically truly is transformed into the body of Christ. Right. And that the wine physically truly is transformed into the blood of Christ. These are theological dogmas, but that if you take them literally, you start to believe that there may be other ways in which substances can be transformed into living tissue. Right. It, it, it introduces a, a, a magical concept that that if taken as a, as a literal fact, uh, turns a num- number of different things on its head. Yeah. Now, like all sexually reproducing species, humans engage in sex to perform sexual recombination. We generally don't follow the idea of spontaneous generation anymore. Uh, we think that generally life most of the time comes from life. And so when sexual recombination happens in sexually re- reproducing species, you have a random mixing of genes from the mother and the father. So our, our sexual cells are known as gametes, the male sperm and the female egg. And each of these contain 23 chromosomes, which is half the normal number of chromosomes in a cell. And then they fuse together to form a new zygote with 46 chromosomes of randomly jumbled genes from the mother and from the father. And these cells then begin to divide until they start to take the shape of an embryo within the mother's uterus. Those are the known basics of actual sexual reproduction. But it hasn't always been taken for granted that this is how it happens. And in fact, I think a great idea uh, for a future episode or series of episodes would be the question of why sexual recombination? Uh, Why don't we just all do asexual reproduction like bacteria might or something like that? Why don't we just split in half and make clones of ourselves? Oh, yeah. In biology, this question is often framed as what compensates for the cost of males? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah, it's a good question to explore. We should come back to it in the future. But, but yeah, so to continue, we know that sexual recombination takes information, uh, from the mother and from the father and fuses it to create a new cell, a new being by jumbling together bits of the blueprints that make up both of the parents. Yeah. And, and you know, as, as early as 350 BCE, uh, Aristotle proposed a theory of epigenesis, which was essentially correct. Yeah, this was basically the idea that the sperm and egg joined to create undifferentiated cells, like stem cells, which then matured over time into bodies. Maybe not correct in all the details as he imagined it, mm-hmm. but it basically gets the gist of reproduction right. 
And yet, just a few centuries ago, you had many people who believed in what was known as uh, preformationism. Yeah, or preformation theory. So, in mm-hmm. like the 17th and 18th, 18th centuries, many very uh, learned or supposedly learned scholars and natural philosophers had this idea that the embryonic human being was already fully formed in its in its entirety except being like smaller or maybe in a in a smaller or sort of a less uh, less defined shape within the sex cells of the mother or the father right they were like fully formed versions of themselves which would simply grow in size or possibly change in shape within the uterus during pregnancy essentially the sex cells were each a homunculus yeah and you see some wonderful uh, artistic uh depictions of this, illustrations of how this might go down. Uh, I, I imagine a number of us have seen these of a sperm, mm-hmm. and there's a tiny human in the sperm. Yeah. The idea here is that the male of the species just shoots a tiny human into the female, and the female is just where that tiny human grows. Yeah. Uh, so one interesting side note, I, I think I would like to point out that the transition from preformation theory to modern reproductive theory is mainly a shift in emphasis about what exactly gets transmitted during sex and during birth. Under preformation theory, what gets transmitted is material mm-hmm. or the means to make material grow. You know, it's either you, you either if you believe that the sperm cell is a pre-fully formed human, it's being transmitted into the uterus, or if you believe that the egg is a pre-fully formed human, uh, the, the uh, sexual reproduction puts some chemical in place that allows it to grow. But under modern theory, what gets transmitted is not material so much as information. It's not getting the rebels a tiny Death Star. It's getting them the plans for the Death Star. Yes. But by focusing on material like this, preformation theory leads to a problem. The sperm and the egg can't both be a homunculus or in what in that case, what's the point of the homunculus? So which one is it? Here you get the controversy between the spermists and the ovists. Yes. Now, uh, we've touched a little bit on the spermist, uh, but but ovists, they believe that the egg contained all that was needed and it merely required male seed as a kind of chemical trigger. Yeah. It would uh, be some kind of vapor that would cause the growth. Yeah. Just a sort of a, a firing of the starter pistol that says, all right, grow the homunculus. Okay. Now, my favorite uh, of the later day Ovist uh, is an Italian uh, physiologist and priest, uh, Lazzaro Spallanzani. Who lives 1729 through 1799. Spallanzani is great. So he believed, as did Charles Bonnet, in the Ovist version of preformation theory. And the, the specifics of their idea is that God created the first female specimen of every species. And when he created that first female, he implanted within her the tiny forms of all future descendants, fully shaped from the beginning, needing only to grow. And the semen only somehow stimulated this growth. But his beliefs about the constituents of semen are pretty amazing. Yeah. So, so again, uh, Spallanzani, he believed this was just like a chemical trigger. Yeah. And that, that was all that the, the semen was actually contributing. And yet he was able to take a look at it and he identified that there was something kind of wormy going on in there. There, there was some sort of, of wormy substance in the semen. Yeah. But how did he make sense of these, uh, these wormy things in the semen? Well, Based on popular theories of the day concerning in the idea of inheritable intestinal worms, Ugh. 
the idea that you would have intestinal worms and you would pass them on to children and, the, and, and to the grandchildren, etc. He thought that the sperm, what we know now as the sperm, might be parasites and that the seminal fluid alone served as this chemical trigger for the re- for the egg. And he uh, he famously uh, this famously led to the use of pants on frogs and other amphibians as an attempt to uh, separate these two entities to, to and to really figure out exactly what was going on during the deposit of fluid uh, in sexual reproduction. So testing the hypothesis that male sex cells are actually just parasites. Right. And this led – we could do a whole episode I think on the various experiments that followed, putting uh, tiny pants on frogs, eventually working his way up to more uh, uh, advanced organisms such as a dog. Um, but it, it and it becomes it becomes unintentionally hilarious at times, but also ultimately illuminating for later later readers uh, to to look back on his experiments and watch this progression towards an understanding of the truth of sexual reproduction. Right. So that guy was an ovist, but there were all these spermists as well who believed that the sperm cells were the individually fully formed humans shrunk down to tiny size. Yeah, and I feel like these are more. Um, these tend to, to be more sort of scandalous and uh, and, and uh, r- ridiculous to modern viewers for a number of reasons, but in part because there is such an inherent uh, uh, like chauvinistic uh, yeah. ideology here. The idea that well, clearly it's all the it's just the man doing it. Yeah, it really feels like trying to write the woman's agency out of uh, the generation of new generations. Yeah. Yeah, in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries, you had Dutch physicist Nicholas uh, Hartseeker, who uh, who definitely took a hardline spermist approach, uh, postulating that each sperm contained a completely preformed humanoid or homunculus, and uh, this came with, uh, with 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 illustrations. Those illustrations I alluded to earlier. Yeah, they're fantastic. Where the the slightly more grown up versions of the cells, as the homunculus gets bigger, look kind of like creepy Christmas ornaments. Yes. Where they're like kind of a wavy, wobbly human form hanging from like a thread on the top of his head. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, they're 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 kind of creepy to look at, but also kind of yeah, kind of holy too. Now, either way you cut it, preformation theory posits something that sounds kind of absurd because. Let's think about the implications for a second. Uh, take the spermist position. Say you're Nicholas Heartseeker. If the spermists were correct, then a man has within his sex organs tiny versions of the men and women that will become his descendants. And those tiny men inside that man must also have within them the tiny men and women that will become that first man's grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And so on and so forth. But of course, since they, you know, they're tiny men within a tiny man, they must be proportionally smaller to start with, right? So you get this ongoing regress of shrinking future generations to fit inside perpetually smaller generations. It's homunculi all the way down. And <laughs> somebody out there, I, I need to stop using that metaphor. <laughs> I've been listening to Sturgill Simpson too much, I think. <laughs> uh, somebody out there who's really math savvy, should take this thought experiment. Given this assumption of a sperm-sized man within every man, and then a proportionally sperm-sized man within the original tiny man, how many generations would you need to go down before your homunculus was smaller than one plank length? <laughs> I like this, yeah, because it, it, it would uh, it would ultimately give you uh, like, like a hard limit to the generations of man. Yeah, at some point, your physics isn't going to work anymore. <laughs> How are you going to make that homunculus? Not out of particles, that's for sure. 
So in, in all of this, we, we've ultimately come back around to this idea of homunculus theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, again, we've talked about the, the homunculi a little bit in terms of alchemy, where the, the creature is not quite a human, but is a rational animal. And, uh, and ultimately another fictional page of humanity's dream of mastering life and death. But Robert, how does this come back to our, our medieval and renaissance art theme we were talking about? Okay, so first of all, it's important to note that this wasn't a case of just clerics on one side, alchemists on the other, and homunculi in between, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's, a, here's a quick quote from William R. Newman in Western Society and Alchemy from 1200 to 1500, published in the Journal of Medieval History in 1980. It says, quote, The fact that alchemists made analogies between the alchemistic process and the Christian mysteries is not so strange when we remember that in the Middle Ages, most alchemists were clerics. Hmm. Although it is true that a number of clerics were offended by Henry VI of England's appeal in which the transmutation of metal was likened to the consecration during Holy Mass, many others did not object. <laughs> so uh, the idea here is that, yeah, don't don't think of the homunculus as being just this thing that is talked about and written of, about by individuals outside of the church. No, uh, the, the 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 authors of uh, homunculus theory were were members of the clergy in many cases. And therefore, it makes sense that in terms of trying to figure out the Christ child, trying to figure out what uh, an infant Jesus would be, uh, what God as a baby would look like they would end up drawing in some of these ideas about homunculi theory. Like making a sort of perfect chemical miniature copy of an adult human. Right. A creature that is uh, preformed not only in body, but in spirit and mind. Hmm. Uh, and thus we have so many of these depictions of the Christ child as being this tiny, perfect humanoid who is already regal and uh, and holy in its... Uh, just bodily positioning and its mannerisms and its appearance. Or you can think of it as just God without the limitations of of actual human infancy. And I guess whether an individual Christian finds that ideal that idea appealing or not appealing, I guess just has to do with their theology, right? Right. Yeah. You, you know, we were talking earlier about whether one of the uh, uh, the man like baby Jesuses would speak or not. Well, apparently it was. Uh, it, it, was, it was in many cases the the baby Jesus is not meant to speak, but is uh, communicating via gestures. Yeah. So you do see this in a lot of the artistic depictions. There's kind of a like he's he's pointing out to one side as if to say, "Oh, you've come to see me, great. We have some chairs and some hors d'oeuvres uh, over here. Uh, if you will just be seated next to the uh, cows." Mary Dazan says, quote, as a homunculus, Jesus simply grew in size within Mary's womb instead of gradually acquiring a more complex body, as did other unborn children. Sort of perfect from the beginning. Yeah. So I think this is this is a very important argument to keep in mind when looking at late medieval and medieval uh, uh, artistic depictions of the Christ child, mm-hmm. that there is this uh, this attempt to understand theologically what that child would consist of. And we have this this idea of the homunculi Jesus, the idea of a preformed and perfect tiny human Jesus that would have emerged from Mary and then grown proportionally. It was very much in sync with many of the alchemical ideas yeah. of the day. Okay, Robert, let's say I want to make a homunculus. Not not a <laughs> uh, not a homunculus theory version of Jesus, but just a regular homunculus. An old-fashioned homunculus. Yeah, I just, I'm getting interested in alchemy. I want to bake a cake, uh, and that cake is a homunculus. What should I do? Well, first of all, get yourself a copy of a medieval text known as the Book of the Cow. 
Nice. Because it lays out some rather grotesque and confusing instructions in the art of do-it-yourself homunculi brewing. So let me tell you what you'll need for this. Okay. Uh, this is straight from the Book of the Cow. Uh, first of all, you'll need wizard semen. And it, this makes sense from a from a spermist point of view, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, if you have the sperm of the wizard, you have uh, probably everything you need to build a human or humanoid creature. Why does it need to be a wizard? Well, um, I'm not sure if it means that you, if you were engaging in the homunculi creation, you were probably uh, yourself a, a wizard or magician and therefore engaged in a very solitary practice. Oh, I see. Yeah, that, that could be it. Or maybe there's something innately magical about the magician's semen. I'm not sure. You're going to need animal blood. You're going to need an actual cow uh, or, a, or a ewe. You're going to need sulfur, a magnet. You're going to need uh, green tutia or a sulfate of iron and a large glass or lead vessel. Oh, and you'll need one more thing. You'll need the sunstone. <laughs> <laughs> What's the sunstone, Robert? Well, the sunstone is a mystical phosphorescent elixir. So th- this is the point. I, I know that you engage in, uh, in mixology as well. This is the point in the cocktail recipe where you realize that that you absolutely cannot make the drink because yeah. you are missing a vital, rare, or expensive ingredient. In this case, an ingredient that, of course, does not actually exist. It is, a, it is a mystical ingredient. And if you have that, then, yeah, you've got to leg up on making a homunculi. Uh, but if not, you're just left with a, you know, a vessel full of uh, wizard semen and cow blood. Yeah, very disappointing. <laughs> now, I'll spare everyone the, uh, the additional uh, instructions here. But I, I'll link to a, a blog post uh, on the landing page for this episode at Stuff to Blow Your Mind that rolls through uh, all you have to do there to, to grow the homunculi within the cow and then allow it to – uh, develop to the point where you can then harvest the homunculi and use it as an ingredient in spells to say turn yourself invisible or give you the gift of flight. Whoa! Yeah, uh, it, but in, in all things um, uh, alchemical, it's it's all rather confusing and full of symbolism and hidden messages. Just like medieval art. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for our discussion today. But remember to go to StuffToBillYourMind.com and check out the image gallery that Robert is putting together of some of these fantastic works of medieval and renaissance art, uh, showing the various stages of creepy baby development in art history. That's right. You're just going to have to see some of these for yourself to uh, to, to really get a grasp of what we're talking about here. Uh, and hey, while you're there at StuffToBillYourMind.com, you can check out all the other podcast episodes we've done. You can uh, check out blog posts and videos, as well as links out to our various social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and so forth. As always, thanks to our audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison, for doing a killer job. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.